Good evening, everyone. For those listening, we are meeting Friday evening this week because tomorrow we're having the Sunrise Pageant here in Collegedale. No classes meet this weekend. And um, Alan is going to go ahead and begin class with prayer for us. Thank you, dear Father, for a beautiful Sabbath evening. We uh, appreciate your love to us. We're thankful, thankful for everything you do for us. Be with Tim as he teaches our class. We special prayer for Lori and Russell's dad, who's in the hospital. We pray for his healing and be with all the members that are not here tonight and uh, be with us tomorrow for the sunrise pageant. Your name, amen. amen. And we are doing lesson number four in our new quarterly, the, the Christian Life. And the lesson this week is actually entitled Life. And if somebody read the memory text for us, please. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And when you hear that text, any thoughts, anything pop to mind? What, what is the basis of life? Knowing God. John seventeen three. This is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ now sent. So knowing God, basis of life, it says in First John three fourteen and fifteen. It says we know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. If we love our brothers, we pass from death to life. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And then he goes on in verse 15, it says, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. How do you put all that together? Well, when I was studying, I was thinking, what would life be like today if Christ hadn't come? Would there be life if Christ never came? I don't know. That's what I was wondering. What would it, would it be? And if so, what would it be like? My belief is there wouldn't be life. If God hadn't been interceding from the t- moment that Adam and Eve fell, I mean, when God intercedes, when you think of intercession, what do you think of? Okay, you think of somebody rescuing us. I like that. That's very good. Is that how we traditionally think of Christ's intercession? No. Or, or, or if we traditionally think of rescue, who is, God, who is uh, he rescuing us from? The Father. That's what we normally think of. No, but intercession, if you, if you think about intercession, as soon as man fell into sin, God began interceding in, in three places, I believe. One, with the principalities and powers of darkness. He sends his angels to hold back the four winds of strife. You read the stories where the hedge of protection is put around Job. Um, you read the stories about Elisha when the Assyrians were coming, had the, the chariots of fire around. So he sends his angels to hold back evil forces. That's one place of intercession. He says in Genesis 3 that that he would put enmity between the woman and the serpent. He puts a desire in our hearts and minds. He intercedes in our hearts to, to, to draw us in the right direction, to convict us of wrongdoing, to enlighten our minds to a better way. He's interceding with the actual pr- destructive principles of sin itself in our hearts to, to lead us in a better direction. And three, he intercedes in the person of his son with the actual, with actually sin itself. He became sin who knew no sin. He came and took our condition upon himself in order to, to stop its advance, to reverse it, to overcome it, to destroy it. So it seems like he intercedes in three places, intercession. Without that intercession, we don't have the evil forces being held in check. We don't have evil in our own heart being held in check. 
We don't have Christ stopping the, the destructiveness of sin in the human species, which what he did in his own life. So what would what would it be like without him if he never came? I don't see that there's life. It's all we've all all been gone already, or never have existed. What do y'all think? Make sense? Yeah. Um, so when we think then about the basis of life, the text say the basis of life is knowing God and love. Interesting, listen to this text, because this is going to talk about judgment, and in, in, in the whole idea of, of eternal life is, is woven in here as well. It's John twelve forty six through 50. It says, As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. You'll find this is a very interesting passage to remember when most Christians talk about the judgment, because they, they want to talk about God sitting in a judicial court, passing judgment on people. Yet Jesus here says, you know, I did not come to judge. For I did not come to judge, but to save it. There is a judge, though, for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him in the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what, I, what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Now, did you notice the Father's command leads to eternal life? So do you put the pieces together? Father's command leads to eternal life. What will judge the wicked in the end is the word that Jesus spoke, which will condemn them. And that word he gets from the Father, which is the Father's command. And that command leads to eternal life. What, what do you think that command is? Anybody know? Yeah, yeah, there is. John 13, right, right after this is John 12, and John 13 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here we have, this is the, this is the command to love. Those who love, we read already in, in 1 John, uh, have passed from death to life, but those who don't love are dead already. And so if we don't experience this command, then we stand condemned in the end. By a, by a judicial decree? Or by the actual condition of our hearts and minds? Why? Why would that lack of love condemn us? We'd be out of place in heaven, for one thing. Yeah, we'd be out of place in heaven. That's true. Paul says in Romans, um, says if someone uh, treats you evilly, um, you know, treat them with acts of kindness and you will heap burning coals upon their head. Have you ever had the experience of, of doing something to somebody that, that wasn't really right? And that person knew it, but tra- treated you kindly and graciously and, and with forgiveness and love anyway. How did you like being around them? Uncomfortable. Were you? Until there was repentance and reconciliation, right? As long as, as, long as that stood in your conscience, you didn't, you didn't fess up, you didn't confess, you didn't uh, repent. As long as you, you knew, it, did, did it just eat at you? The kinder they were to you? Yeah. So how is love connected to life? Which is what we're talking about this week. Life. Eternal life. Connected to knowing God. Connected to love. The law of love. Anybody want to walk through that? I've done it many times. So it's one somebody else would like to walk us through it. <laughs> we're not all shy. We know each other here, don't we? We love each other, don't we? We like the way you do it. We like the way you do it. Okay. Okay. 
Well, 1 Corinthians 13 says love is not self-seeking. So if love doesn't seek self, what is it seeking? Outward moving, other-centered. Okay, this is the principle of love. And uh, love emanates from, from God, yes. Okay, is it, a, is it something he creates and, and does? And there's a little subtle lie. Actually, have you ever heard this? I'm going to tell you a lie. What's the Bible say that God is? Love. God is love. Does it say God is loving? No. See, can you be loving? Can't you be loving? Yes. But are you love? No. Is there a difference from being loving and being love? Notice the subtle lie that weaves in. When you, when you talk about God's love, there will be people that will push back and say this. He's not only loving, he's also just. just. Notice the lie. They've switched him now. He's no longer love. Now he's, he's loving. You see the subtle little distortion that enters there. And then because he's no longer love, they can add this other piece in. He's also just, which they mean punitive and punishing. And they twist his nature and character. It's a lie. It's very subtle. But it's a distortion, and it's commonly held. Commonly held. You'll get this pushback a lot. So when we talk about God's character, God's character is a character of love. And from his character emanates the principle of love. love. And it's the principle of other-centered giving, which all life is created to operate upon. And we'll go through only one example here from nature today. And that's the law of respiration. Respiration is a law of life. And in order to be alive, we must breathe. And in breathing, you give away with every breath carbon dioxide freely. And the plants give back oxygen to you freely. If you decide to break that law, stop giving, die. you die. And is God a very punitive and arbitrary, uh, uncompromising and severe for saying, uh, in the day that you refuse to breathe, you will surely die? Can the law be bent? It can't be. It's uncompromising. Why? Because it's the design upon which life is designed to work. So with that in mind, I want to read to you uh, two uh, quotes from from a a book. One book is called Mount of Blessing. The other book is called Desire of Ages. And notice what's described here. It says, Jesus, the express image of the Father's person, the effulgence of his glory, the self-denying Redeemer throughout his pilgrimage of love on earth, was a living representation of the character of the law of God. In his life, it is made manifest that heaven-born love, what is the character of the law of God? Love, according to this. Uh, Christ-like principles underlie the the laws of eternal rectitude. Those principles that were made known to man in paradise as the great law of life will exist unchanged in paradise. That's Mount of Blessing, page 48. And then on Desire of Ages, page 21, it says, But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The, fa- the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from the Father, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. What do you all hear when you hear this description? The circle of giving. 
It's, it's incredible. So how, how do you hear it? Is, is this the law of life? Because if you don't obey this law, God will be forced to kill you. No, you kill yourself. Is that how you heard it? The great law, the law of life? I'm telling you, many people read this very passage and they come away with it saying, yep, it's God's law. And it's the law of life because he gives you life. And if you don't obey his law, he'll take his, your life from you. So what does the Bible say sin is? Transgression of the law of the old King James Version. Any other versions? Lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Think that through now. If you get your mind around this idea of the law of love as a principle, a designed template upon which life is, is constructed to work, then sin would be breaking of that law. And the wages of sin is? Death. Okay, this is why death comes, because it actually breaks the very construction protocols that life is designed to operate upon. It's not an inflicted penalty because you broke a rule and a magistrate has to, uh, has to inflict a, a penalty. In fact, we've concluded that God's law is an enacted law. And this is a big difference. When you talk to people, uh, make this distinction between a, a natural law that emanates from God's character that he, he created all life to operate upon, and an enacted law, legislated law, that someone put in force. You see, if the law was, was in legislated, enacted by God, then what we do is we see him as the great cosmic enforcer of his law. And therefore, he must inflict penalties to make people pay in order to be just. And with this as the problem, that's our problem. See, we misunderstand the law. We misunderstand what happens when we break the law. God's enforcing penalties. And then that's our problem, so we concoct. A, re- a solution for that. And what's the solution for that? Jesus came to pay our penalty and appease his father. Yes? So when in early writings and short redemption and stuff, it's talking about God's law existed before the earth was created. It's not the Ten Commandments law it's talking about. Absolutely not. Are you comfortable with that? The law is a law of love. And let's, let's, let's walk through the evidences for why we can be certain that the Ten Commandment law was added. And, the, and when it says in Galatians the law was added because we needed it, it's speaking of the Ten Commandments law primarily, but also the ceremonial laws as well, which were also added. Um, but how do we know that it wasn't always in existence before this creation sin? Well, what's the fourth commandment? And how do we know when the Sabbath begins and the Sabbath ends? No, each week. How do you know? How do you know when Sabbath starts today? The setting of the sun, which was created when? Fourth day of creation week of this planet. What measuring device would they have used before the sun was made? Second commandment. What's the second commandment? The second commandment, have no other God. And what's it saying there? For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities upon the third and fourth generations. Was that happening to the angels, three and four generations down of angels? No. No. What's the um, fifth commandment? Did the angels need to honor their father and mother? No. What's the seventh commandment? Not to commit adultery. Did the angels have a need for an adultery commandment? No. Are you seeing that the commandments were constructed for this creation? Because we needed them. But they're what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself, all the law hangs on these two. And so Paul says in Romans that when there is love, it's fulfillment of the law. 
And so the great law, the law of life that we just read in these other passages, is the law of love that was always in existence because it's the construction protocol for life. That is the law. Yes? Could it be there's other life though out there somewhere that also is law applicable to? Oh, there's no question there's other life out there. There's no question there's other life. The Ten Commandment law would, would be applicable to them before we were created. I don't have any inspired evidence to support that. We could speculate that that could be true. I don't believe personally it is, because the law was not needed until man fell into sin. And remember the purpose of the law given in the Bible, the law was added so that sin might abound. What does that mean? That there would be more sin or that we could see it more easily? Okay, so the law was given as a diagnostic instrument that would actually expose the sickness of our hearts. And so the written law is really like an MRI of your soul. When you're sick and you don't know what it is, they go do an MRI. The MRI is there not as anything more than a diagnostic instrument. It doesn't heal, it doesn't fix, it doesn't resolve anything. It just exposes them. And so you could say, you know, the MRI was, was added so that sickness and disease might abound. So that we could see more of the disease process. Well, that's what the law was for. And then once it diagnoses, then it also is to lead us to the heavenly physician, Christ, for our healing. So I don't see a purpose for the written law prior to the need, because we're sick in heart, and needed to have it exposed. But there are other worlds, and the Bible says that in Hebrews 1, verse 2, that through uh, Christ, uh, God, through Christ, made the worlds, plural. You'll find that it, it translated that way in the, in, the, in the American Standard Version. So, And, of course, we also read in Job 38, 7, that um, when this earth was created, the, the sons of God sang together for joy. And we're going to come to that um, in a moment, because I think that actually is, is part of today's lesson. So Jesus came for what purpose? Once man fell into sin, the law is broken. We're outside of love. We're, we're, we're operating on this fear and selfishness, the survival of the fittest, me first instinct. God is interceding. He's holding back the four winds of strife, the evil and satanic forces. He's holding them in check. He's, he's working in our hearts and minds to convict and draw us to back to him again. And then Christ comes for what purpose? What's Christ coming to do? Show us the Father, number one, to destroy the lies and win us to trust. Because if we don't trust him, then we're not going to get well. But what else? He came to deal with sin. To deal, oh, I like that, to deal with sin. It's actually right out of, uh, out of Romans. He, he came to deal with sin. How did he deal with it? By providing the remedy. Providing the remedy. He became sin who knew no sin. It says in Hebrews 4.15... He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. It says in James chapter 1 that we're tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Did Jesus have that trouble? Did he have a humanity that actually tempted him? In Gethsemane, did he have powerful emotions? And if he followed his emotions, where would he have gone? He would have saved himself. See, the issues are loving others and giving yourself. Greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend. Or loving self so that we'll protect self and deny others. And those are the two big issues. And and, and this is what infects all of our hearts. Christ took our condition, became one of us, joined his infinity, his immortality. He joined it to our mortality. And he overcame where we could not overcome. Giving his life perfectly. Thus he destroyed the very basis of sin itself. In the human being, that's the key, in a, in a human brain, if you want to put it that way. All right, Sunday's lesson. Somebody read the first two paragraphs, starting how did life originate? 
how did life originate? Some people point to a godless evolutionary unfolding of human existence. Others argue for the divine role in the slow process of millions of years during which simple forms of life somehow made their appearance and subsequently developed into more complex organisms, including humans. This theory, however, creates more questions than it answers. And besides, nothing in the Bible even hints that God used evolution to create humanity. Meanwhile, several renowned scholars have in recent years convincingly argued that this theory is in deep crisis. But even the staunchest supporters of evolutionary thinking must admit that life remains as great a mystery as ever. At the same time, those who believe in God as the creator of this world and of all the universe do not have all the answers either. But the creationist approach is far more logical and coherent than the improbable theory that human life resulted from chance. Thoughts? Comments? Yeah, there's no question that the creationist view is so much more logical, scientific, reasonable than the other view. In fact, the whole evolutionary theory, it is, uh, well, it is in crisis. It doesn't even make sense at all. If you, if you understand the two antagonistic principles at war, the law of love, the circle of giving, which says life is designed to operate upon, is at war with the survival of the fittest principle. And the survival of the fittest principle, unopposed, brings death. We can look at nature and see this. Anybody know what a virus is? Okay. What does a virus actually do? It enters the cell, it hijacks the machinery of the cell, and reprograms the machinery of the cell to do one thing. What's it do? Me, 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 more of me. And so it's used up all the resources of the cell, and then that cell dies and explodes, releasing tons of more viruses to the cells around, which infects the cells around, hijacks the machinery of those cells, which me, 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 more of me, till those cells die. And if something isn't done to intervene, to intercede, to stop it, it will kill the host and then kill itself because there's nothing left for it to live on. That is unopposed survival of the fittest. That is unopposed me first. In our white blood cells, our immune system show the other principle. White blood cells will, will run to the scene and sacrifice themselves in order to save the host. So we see, even on a cellular level, this, this war being played out. But there are some, some things that we ought to just give some quick explanation to for those who struggle with this. If we look at the geological formations on Earth, and they do geological dating with radioisotopes and half-lives of various radioisotopes, they, they will date rocks on Earth that are billions of years old. Billions of years old. Not just a few ten thousands of years, billions of years. We have a, do we have an answer for that? Does a Genesis account give us an answer for that? Yes, it does, but not the way it's traditionally interpreted. In traditional interpretation, the Genesis account is 6,000 years ago, God created everything. It's not what Genesis actually teaches. It's very interesting. Have you ever wondered how on day one it says, let there be light? And on day four, the sun, moon, and stars were created. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Light came on day one, sun, moon, and stars came on day four. It's like, what's that all about? Well, first notice that in Hebrews 1-2, worlds were created, not just our world. God created worlds. And in Job 38-7, it's the sons, sons of God were singing together for joy when the earth was created. So the biblical record tells us there was already intelligent creation out there in the universe before this planet was created. So the idea that Genesis is talking about creation of all life in the entire universe that week is incorrect. The Bible does not support that. However, 
If you go back down to read to Genesis 1 verses 2, at the very beginning of creation on this planet, it describes the condition of earth when God came to create here. Okay, the English words without form, void, and dark. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. It was without form and void. These are the English words. And if you do a little word study, you'll find that they mean black, empty, void, deep, dark. It's a black, deep, dark pit that is so intense that even light cannot escape it. Uh, Yes, and what it's describing is that God had already created the universe some billions of years before. Who knows how long? It doesn't tell us in the scripture. And he goes to a corner of the Milky Way where there's a black hole in space to begin terraforming, to create a new world with new life. And there's a black hole here, and he says, let there be light. The black hole dissipates. And now the light of the Milky Way and all the stars he'd created some billions of years before is now flowing through this part of space. And then he creates on day four the sun, moon, and stars of this solar system, Venus, Mercury, Mars, the stars of our solar system. And so, in the the center of the black hole, black hole is a dense gravity well, there's mass, and that mass, that matter that had been there that God had created some billions of years before, he used that matter to terraform this solar system. And so when we date the geological rocks from billions of years ago, well, yeah, God made them billions of years ago. No big deal with that. It shouldn't be thrown off. And the biblical record gives us every reason to believe that was the case. What about when people do carbon dating? When people do carbon dating, they take dead organic material and they'll date it. And it comes out sometimes up to 50,000 years of age. Well, um, how do we understand that? The biblical record gives us an answer for that as as well if we read it. See, carbon dating and the way it works, most of the carbon in in our environment and our bodies is carbon-12. But solar radiation causes some of that carbon-12 to turn into an isotope that's radioactive called carbon-14. And the amount of carbon-14 is fairly constant in our current environment. And so as long as we're alive, our bodies are constantly replenishing and replacing all the carbon in our system. There's an equilibrium between the levels of carbon-14 in our bodies and the environment. So as soon as we die, the carbon-14 in our bodies begins to decay. And it has a half-life of 5,700 and some odd years, something like that. And so they can measure the amount of carbon-14 in some organic material, and they can date it up to 50, a suggested date of up to 50,000 years, depending on how little is left. Do we have an explanation from the Bible that helps us understand that? The flood. Yes, we do, the flood. You see, the assumption is made in this whole dating thing that carbon-14 in our atmosphere has always been at the current level. But the Bible tells us in Creation Week that God separated the firmament and put a layer of water above the earth, kind of like our ozone layer. And that layer of water above the earth would act like an insular shield that would shield this atmosphere from solar radiation. But not only that, it's incredible if you understand what would happen if we had a layer of water above the earth, most of which currently is in our oceans that weren't there when God created the planet, it's big oceans like we have, most of that water above the earth, when the solar radiation hits it, that water not only protects from the radiation, but it dissipates the solar energy uniformly around the earth, creating a wonderful planet where there are no polar extremes and there's no equatorial hotspots. So the whole planet was a beautiful habitation that you could go anywhere on this planet. And so anything that lived prior to the flood would have significantly less um, carbon-14, because there was much less in the atmosphere, and it would appear to be tens of thousands of years older. Can we give explanation that is scientific, that's reasonable, that's consistent with the biblical record? You bet we can. And so we don't need to be afraid of, ha- of having these discussions. Yes? 
I went to a seminar where they showed uh, various aspects of creation, and the thing that boggled my mind was the flight. And being individuals or animals that fly, mathematically it's very difficult to even come up with a number that would say how long it would take from one form of flight to occur naturally. Uh, then if you take it that we actually have three separate and entirely different forms of flight. You know, we have insects, we have mammals, and we have birds, all with entirely different body structures, all flying. And mathematically, that's like an impossibility that that would all occur on its own. And then if you ever read anything about the human brain, I know none of you probably spend your off time reading about the human brain, but I do. And... Um, if you read anything even superficially, you will read about how the human brain evolved over hundreds of millions of years from lower life forms and that we have within our brain the primitive reptilian brain that we get all our impulses and survival, um, you know, fight and flight instincts and stuff from. And, uh, and the, you know, the, the lower life forms have the, the more primitive, uh, you know, brainstem and limbic system regions. And then as you go up what they call the evolutionary chain, you get higher and higher cortex function, culminating ultimately with humans with the greatest neocortex, the prefrontal cortex. 30% of our brain is prefrontal cortex the, the most. And, and they say this was an evolutionary process, gaining, gaining more and more brain over over the years to help us evolve and develop. Now, what do you say to that, the fact that there's so much similarity between you know, this, our brains and lower life forms? Well, it's very simple. All you have to say it was, yeah, of course it's that way, because it was designed that way. You see, well, next time you're out on the street, I want you to look around all the vehicles you're seeing. You might see somebody on a bicycle. You might see somebody in a go-kart. You might see somebody in a horse and buggy, you might actually see a, a unicycle, a wheelbarrow, a, a, a semi, a pickup truck, lots of different vehicles. Could you notice similarities amongst them all? Do they have different levels of complexity? Could you order them from the most primitive to the most complex form of transportation? And, and as you order them from that, that, that simplicity and more complex form of transportation, would you then conclude that through natural selection and competition and survival of the fittest uh, things going on, that these, these higher vehicles, these more complex vehicles, somehow evolved over millions of years? Or would you look and say the designers took elements that were functional and, and, and workable and, and, and just incorporated them into well, what does the biblical record tell us about our brain? Interestingly enough, if you notice how we were created in, in order of creation week, on day five, what was created first? As far as the animals go? The brains on this planet? Fish, amphibians, reptiles were created first. And birds. All with the smallest brains. And on day six, then came the mammals, culminating with the last thing created, man. And you see that he just moved right up. He just kept adding to his creation right on up to the pinnacle. It's a design. It's right there laid out. It's very interesting that it is laid out that way in the scripture. You find a pattern that works, you keep it. Exactly. You find a pattern that works, you keep it. So, let's read the third paragraph. What is true for the mystery of life in general is also true for each human life. Although we possess a lot of scientific knowledge about the process involved in the conception and growth of human life, each new parent who holds a newborn child in his or her arms knows intuitively that this new life is nothing less than a miracle. It is a fundamental Christian conviction that life, a human life, is a very special, in a very special sense, is sacred. And the bottom pink, 
What difference does it make that God is the creator of all life, including our own? How should our stance on the origin of life impact our views about such things as death penalty, abortion, and euthanasia? Let's do with the first stuff first here. When did God create human life? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. And in what condition was human life when it came from the hand of God? Did God give humans, at the time of their creation, an ability, a capacity to create beings in their image? Adam and Eve sinned. Did Adam and Eve actually change their condition from perfection to imperfection? Who made that change in Adam and Eve? They did. Okay. And were they still functioning as God designed them, or were they now functioning outside God's design? And then when Adam and Eve decided to have children, were those children conceived in sin and born in iniquity, as it says in Psalms 51? Five. Did God do that? Ooh, isn't that interesting? Do you know how many people within Christian circles have believed a lie that God does that? Does God create sinners? No. No. When God creates, it's always perfection. Always perfection. How many of you have, uh, at some point in your life, believed that you were personally and individually created by God? Still do. (laughs) Personally and individually. Notice I didn't say, you know, in Adam. As Paul says, we were in Adam. When God created. No, we, we, we have mistaken that and taken the idea that God creates each one of us now individually. So, when a man rapes a woman and she becomes pregnant, do you see God creating? I didn't hear anything that time. No. no. Oddly enough, some people still do. Does love, remember, who is God? God is does love create by rape? No. no. Hmm. Well, let's look at what the lesson cites, Psalms 139, verse 13 and 14. It says, and this is what it says from the scripture, David, writing the scripture. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know full well. Well, see, this is proof. We have a Bible text that says God is doing it, right? Well, if God is doing it, individually, each one of us, now, on this planet, today, using his divine power directly to create us as, as individual people, does that mean that children who are born with spinal bifida, congenital heart defects, and other deformities, God was having a bad knitting day? <laughs> or, if it's true that God creates each one of us as we are, then when a child is born with a defect a congenital defect, a heart defect, or Siamese twins, if you've read the story of Ben Carson, who separates these co-joined twins. If, if they're born in this way, if we believe God is the one who designed this and did this and created them, then what right do we have to fix it? Won't we be in, in interfering and obstructing the divine will if God is the one who made them this way? Do we believe God is the one who made us the way we are? Mm-hmm. 
If God is the one using his divine power from heaven to create each one of us right now on planet Earth like we are, then when an uh, alcoholic mother drinks a bottle of vodka every day during pregnancy and that child is born with severe birth defects, what happened? Shouldn't God's divine power be stronger than alcohol? Or is God weaker than alcohol? Pardon? So is, but, but if we take the position God is the one doing it, if it's his divine power at work, I mean, do we believe that when God decides to move and act, that any human being can stop him from doing what he wants to do? Then, if he's acting and we take the position, he is creating each one of us, then how come alcohol is causing all these babies to be born messed up? Visited the third and fourth generation. So, but who's doing it then? Is God creating? Or has God given us a gift, given his human children an ability that he delegated to us and he leaves it up to us how we use that ability? When God, did God give Samson strength? Supernatural that was not his own. Did God control how Samson used that strength? No. Did God give Solomon wisdom? Yes. Did God control how Solomon used that wisdom? No. Did God give the human species the the ability to procreate? Yes. Does God control how we use it? No. No. What was David talking about? David, ah, was talking about God's design template. See, could we survive without God's continual sustaining of his laws? God created the laws of life. Remember the law of life we talked about? God created the laws of nature, the laws of physics. God continues to sustain all of these things. So it is through God's design template and his continued sustenance of the whole universe that these things unfold. But that doesn't mean he is directly involved in causing it from his divine throne, does it? Like it says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It does say that. Because that's the way he designed it. That's the way he designed it to work. Who designed, who designed the, the human being the way the human being is designed? Who designed for a man and a woman to join themselves together, give them themselves, and for it to develop in this way? So when it happens, whose design template is being unfolded? God's design template. So clearly, this is just an unfolding of God's design. So you can say, yes, this is just proof how wonderfully God made us. But does that mean that God in this particular person, each one of us here, decided which particular sperm of dads and which particular egg of moms was going to get together that day? Hand, yes. It's a function of God's... uh providence and wisdom he created not only his template but he created a, a design and a plan which essentially worked out through the, the children of Israel to bring people back closer and closer to that template. That's right. To that original design. And, and so when, when we read something like that in the Psalms you have to recognize that that's a, that's a a culmination of centuries of, but through the patriarchs, the prophets, whoever, whoever else believed in the way of living, even since the point of the entrance of sin. The lesson goes, another hand somewhere? Yes. This whole concept of God that we see, as you've just been talking about it, is carried out almost exponentially in so many other doctrines. I, I see uh, relatives and friends who believe that God 
basically we're puppets, you know, and he has the day we're going to go to heaven. So they don't take care of their body. They don't do anything because, after all, he's designed a day for me to leave. So why should I do anything to take care of myself? And that's only one of the ways that we end up blaming God for the very things that we do to ourselves. Nice, nice point. Nice point. Yes, you had a hand? No? Okay. It says in the lesson that human life, quote, human life is a very, in a very special sense is sacred. And that's the end of the quote. Besides the obvious a discrete human being, what actually constitutes human life? What about a sperm? Is a sperm sacred? Or an ovum? How about a, a toenail? A hair follicle? A zygote? A fertilized egg? A denucleated ovum? A denucleated ovum with a foreign nucleus added. Does anybody know what I mean when I say that? That would be a clone. Blood, blood cells. Organs like heart, lung, spleen, appendix, uterus. I mean, when we say human life is sacred, what are we talking about? Well, when God made Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. So, he, she, if everybody couldn't hear that, she said when God made Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living being or a living soul. You had another, you had another point you wanted to make? Well, that's, that's what would be a human being. Okay, so was there a time when Adam's body was formed? Had organs, had cells, but the breath of life had not yet been breathed in? Yes. At that point, in that point in creation history, Adam's body is formed, breath of life has not been breathed in yet. Was Adam at that point any more sacred than anything else God had created on planet Earth? No. So when did Adam become more sacred? When God gave him the gift of life. And why did Adam become more sacred? Because he had powers to reason and understand and communicate with God. See, he was made in whose image? Recognize this is the pinnacle of creation week. Mankind, the human species, was created in God's image as the, as the spectacle, the showpiece of God's very nature and character. The law of love that we started this whole class talking about today. The living is a living law. You cannot understand the law of love written on stone. Let me give you a quick example, an analogy. Each one of us, you know, have you heard that people say that the Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character? Have you heard that? Okay, that's right. Just like your DNA is a transcript of you. And we could take your DNA now and we could actually write out the sequence on paper and we could look at your sequence. And we could say, this is a, this is a transcript of, uh, of Linda. We got a transcript of Linda here. By looking at this transcript, do we know the sound of her laugh, the warmth of her hug, the character of the person that she is? You see, the Ten Commandments are a transcript, but you cannot understand the law of love written on stone because the law of love is a living law, and it can only be understood fully in living, intelligent, free, sentient beings. And thus, Adam and Eve became the repository of the living law of love. And you know the new covenant, when God wants to take us to, I will write my law where? 
Our heart and minds, we are to be that repository again. And so Adam and Eve became sacred and holy when they became the repository of the very nature and character of God himself. And this is what was so incredible about the gift of procreation. Because the law of love is a law of giving, the circle of beneficence, never ending. And what happened when Adam and Eve were created from God, two separate beings were to come together in the perfect unity of love, giving of themselves freely to each other. And when they did, they bring forth new life in their image. How godly was that? How powerful was that? And what a lesson book to all the beings in the universe watching as they're looking in to learn lessons about God and they're trying to figure this whole thing out and these new kids are coming into this world with perfect parents because Adam and Eve have stayed loyal. And what do they learn as they watch this? That Adam and Eve had children to enslave, to abuse, to lord over, to dominate, to control, to give rules to, and if you obey, I'm going to have to punish you. Or did they learn from what they have learned, if Adam and Eve say loyal, that Adam and Eve was giving constantly of themselves for the health, welfare, and beneficence of the kids. And the universe looking home and going, I get it, I get it. God didn't create us to wait on him. He's giving of himself constantly for our good. Yes, sacred. Human life is sacred. For what purpose? To live in love. Living in love is what makes people sacred. When Adam and Eve sinned, did they lose that sacredness? And do we not have it until we're, folks born again? Interesting question. And I would have to say, save for Christ's intercessions, yes. Remember the war between Christ and Satan? God, God made man in his image. Satan targeted this planet to efface the image of God in man and to replace it with Satan's image in man. That's what he wanted to do. And when man fell into sin, if it wasn't for God's intercessions that we talked about already in class today, if it wasn't for that, there would have been complete unity between fallen man and fallen angels. Complete unity. And there wouldn't have been the law of love written in. There would have been the same character that you see in Satan. And is Satan sacred? No, man would not have been sacred either. So the sacredness in man is not of man's origin. Would you think? No. no, it's the rip- we are we are the temple of what? And if you use that metaphor, when was the temple sacred? When God's presence was there. Okay, when are we sacred? When God lives within us, and that's where they were originally designed. Of course, God lived within them when they were originally designed, but they believed lies about Him and close their minds and hearts to him. And so this is our challenge now, to become that living temple again, to experience that sacred calling. Yes? Insert too, just an interesting thing about the genetics of people. They've discovered now in unfolding the genetics that we are built as a communication form, just like we have letters, words, sentences, paragraphs, only instead of we have 26 letters, there's four genetic pieces put together in those kinds of structures, like words and sentences and paragraphs that combine to make us unique to ourselves and so on. And so in effect, the genetic code shows that we are part of God's work. I didn't even want to get into that, but since you brought it up, (laughs) what we're discovering today, and it's very fascinating stuff that on a cellular level, um, our cells have various receptors that stick out from the cell into the environment around the cell. And that is how the cell gets signals to know what to do. The, uh, anybody know what the command center of the cell is? 
What, see, I heard several people say nucleus. And because we were taught in biology 101, that's the command center. And we were taught wrong. <laughs> can the nucleus, can the DNA on its own self turn itself on or turn itself off? It cannot. The DNA is simply a, br- a blueprint. It is, if you want to use it from a physiological level, the DNA are the gonads of the cell. It's where they go to reproduce. It's where the functions of the cell go to get reproductive instructions to make new proteins and new, and new elements that the cell needs. But it doesn't control itself. It doesn't turn itself on and it doesn't turn itself off. The signals to turn your DNA on and turn your DNA off comes from the cell membrane, which comes from the, 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 the signals it's getting outside itself. This is, what, this is how medicines work, by the way. Psychiatric medicines work by tweaking the receptors. The receptors cause configuration change. There are various receptors that we have. Some are ion channels, some are transmembrane receptors. But the receptor sticks out into the synaptic space. And when a chemical binds to it, it causes a configuration change inside the neuron. That configuration change causes inside the, inside the cell a protein to bind to it. That protein then sends, activates another second messenger. It's like a, a, a sentry or something, a relay. And that second messenger goes down to the DNA, and that second messenger turns on and turns off DNA sequences and activates different protein sequences to be produced. That changes cell function. The DNA is just waiting for some signal to come to turn it on or turn it off. And so that's what we do. Interestingly enough, it seems to appear that the evidence is supporting these receptors respond not just to chemical modulators, they respond to energy waves. Energy waves will affect the, the receptors in your cells and will cause gene expression changes. If you've heard of transcranial magnetic stimulation, have you heard of that? It's a treatment for depression. And what they do is they put a magnet, electromagnet, and they send electromagnetic waves to the brain and it alters gene expression. We've proven that certain genes get turned on with this treatment. How is that happening? Because the receptors in the cell membranes have a configuration change based on the um, electromagnetic radiation coming from the magnet. Now think this through when it comes to the influence we have on people. Because every one of our thoughts, when you have a thought, you create an electromagnetic wave that can be picked up outside of you. That's what EEGs are. They actually now have uh, devices you can put on your head that read your thoughts. And you can actually interface with computers now based on certain types of thought patterns that you have. They can read the electromagnetic wave. So what the Bible talks about, fellowship and company, when you're, and we've actually now uh, have, have scanning images of the brain and brain structures. When you hang around negative people who are angry, they send out negative waves and they actually activate the negative emotional centers in you and your mood will start sliding down. When you hang around cheerful people, happy people, they send out different magnetic waves that your brain resonates with and your mood will be lifted. Have you not ever experienced that? Okay. There's actually physiologic connections going on here. And we wonder now about the Holy Spirit indwelling us, about being a temple for God. I mean, let your imagination play with this. It's impressive. It's incredible. Do you have a question? 
say, Ellen White talked about that too, didn't she? I mean, the life forces that people have and the influence you have on other people. I mean, she, she talked about that 100 years ago. And I think I have a quote that might even play on that in just a second. So let's, let's, with all that in mind, let's go on to a couple other things. The, the last question in the pink section says, how should, now with our understanding of the origins of life and, and so forth, how should this impact our view of, of things like uh, the death penalty, abortion, and euthanasia? Any, any takers on that? <laughs> well, um, two, two points I'm going to come to. First one, we'll go to the, the quote from Education, page 209. Listen to this. See, and in relation to everything we've talked about, including the question that's hanging in the air nobody wants to grab onto, listen to this. The brain nerves that connect with the whole system are the medium through which heaven communicates with man and affects the inmost life. Whatever hinders the circulation of the electrical currents in the nervous system, thus weakening the vital powers and lessening mental susceptibility, make it more difficult to arouse the moral nature. Does that give us any insight into what makes somebody human? In other words, ask the question, how does God communicate to somebody without a brain? How does somebody without a brain worship, love, think, reason, make moral choices to obey and and surrender their life to God or, or not? How do they do that without a brain? If we believe that the brain nerve is the brain nerves are the only medium through which the Holy Spirit works and affects the inmost life, if we believe that. So what is that then? Does that inform us, give us insight? See, when I give lectures, and I give them all over the country on, on uh, the, the neurobiology and spiritual biological interface, I point out that the purpose of every organ system of your body, the primary purpose of your heart, your lungs, your liver, every organ system of your body, primary purpose is to serve your brain. Your heart beats and lung breathe to give nutrients and oxygen to your brain. That's its purpose. Your arms and legs are there to take your brain from place to place and let your brain interact with the world. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what they're there for. Okay? And thus, when you have somebody who has heart beating and lungs breathing without a brain, those do so without purpose. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, with that in mind... Should Christians use their energy, their resources, their abilities, their times to reform government to get right politicians elected, the right judges in office, and to get the right laws passed for their agenda? Is that the job of the church? If you're not sure, let's take Christ as our example. We agree Christ is our example. The apostles would be an example. In the apostolic day, in Christ's day, what were the human rights conditions in Rome? Were there human rights violations and abuses going on? Slavery, gladiators, all kinds of abuses. Do we find Christ or his apostles in any way trying to get the right governors in office, the right senators elected, the right laws passed in the the empire of Rome? No. 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 What did they focus their energy on? Converting the hearts. And when they converted the hearts, what happened to the empire of Rome? It transformed the world. I mean, that is our mission. Our mission is to change hearts, to convert people away from the worldly system to the godly way of doing things, to convert them from self-centered, survival of fittest methods to other-centered love. And when we do that, then we don't really have to worry about passing laws. Do you understand why heaven is going to be heaven? 
Because every person there would rather die than ever hurt you. And you would rather die than hurt anybody there. Everybody else loves you that much. In a place like that, do we need laws? No. We have to pass laws because people don't have love in their hearts. And so the mission of the church is to prepare the world for Christ's coming. That's our mission. And so we don't, we, we don't want to be fooled into investing in agendas that have laudable goals on their surface, but use ungodly methods to achieve those goals. One of those being the idea of protecting innocent life, while we use coercion, intimidation, force, and imposition. God's methods are the methods of truth, presented in love, leaving people free. And if you're not sure, let me just put this question to you. Who is the only truly innocent life to ever walk on planet or live on planet Earth? And when it came down to the choice that the Father had, that the Spirit had, that the Son had, between protecting innocent life or leaving humans free to kill that life, which choice did they make? Freedom. We promote the truth in love and we leave people free. Does that mean we want to go out and promote killing? Of course not. We want to protect life using God's methods. That's the big difference. You follow me? Yeah. Don't get sucked in to doing something that looks good on the surface, but actually uses methods antagonistic to the way God operates. This is what will happen in the end. Those people in the end who become that system known as the beast, how many of those people think they're doing God's will? Didn't even Christ say they, they think they will persecute you and kill you thinking they're doing God's will? These are not agnostics and atheists doing this. They think they're doing something good, but they practice Satan's methods. Don't get sucked into that. Yep, Saul changed to Paul. Absolutely. Well, our time has gone so quickly. That's been a whole hour already. Man, it's gone by fast. All right, let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this opportunity to study about you, your incredible creation. Lord, our minds are really dark. We, we know so little, but we want to know more. We ask that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds. Allow us to see the truths of your word, the truths that you've revealed to us about your character and nature. Let us put the pieces together. Let our hearts be transformed to love you and love our brothers as you have designed us to love, that we can be those sacred temples shining in this dark world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.